Welcome to Ear Biscuits. I'm Rhett. And I'm Link. It's time for another conversation with an interesting person from the internet. And this week at the round table of dim lighting, we have the one and only Michael Stevens, creator of one of the most fascinating channels on the internet. You've heard of it. Vsauce. He schools us on who he is, the person behind the science. Is he just the internet's version of Bill Nye or something more? We also talk about his surprising path to where he's at with Vsauce now and the unexpected way he came up with the name Vsauce. His initial viral success had nothing to do with science. So this is convolution happening here. We also discuss the secrets to how he gets so many views on his videos. Does being a Google employee give him an unfair advantage as a YouTuber? Uh-huh. Now, I got to admit, when I talk to someone like Michael Stevens, who is obviously a smart gentleman, he has a reputation for being a smart guy, I selfishly like to be able to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I was an engineer once. I majored in civil engineering. I have an engineering degree. I have a degree. I have, a, yeah. I have an industrial engineering degree. Right, and so, you know, that's your background. I took three levels of calculus. Right, and so we, and you know this if you've listened to us talk about our backgrounds before, that, you know, we have engineering degrees, and we did that for a few years. Now, the interesting thing is that we have pretty much done stuff together since we met one another, right? You know, mm-hmm. school. First grade on, we kind of, okay, friends, let's kind of have, let's, we're, we're doing stuff together, except for this, after graduating yeah, from college now, and getting engineering Now, interestingly, jobs. we were doing the same thing. I mean, we, we both got engineering degrees and we both wore khakis and polos to work every day. Yep. But we went to two separate places. Did you tuck your polo in? Oh, of course. You, I mean, you couldn't not tuck your polo in. I think on an occasional Friday, I wouldn't tuck my polo but in. But then you just looked like a punk. You mean you wore you wore khakis with an untucked polo? That doesn't even look good. Looks kind of slobbish. Yeah, it's like, I'm not going to trust that guy with any calculations. Yeah, true. You know? on fr- well, on Fridays. <laughs> well, on Fridays, I wore jeans, but Ooh. I tucked a polo into them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was casual Fridays. You can't get too casual here. You know, I got to wear flip-flops or something. But the thing that's interesting is that I know a fair amount about your time at IBM as an industrial engineer simply through stories that you've told now that we do this. But you, we didn't talk about it at all at the time. I, I had no idea what you were doing on a daily basis. Well, what was I doing? I mean, what was I supposed to say? Hey, man, I got to tell you about this conveyor belt layout that I designed today when the when the refurbished computers come down here, I figured out the best way to put them in a box and to tape the box. I actually bought the machine that tapes the box. It's amazing. Will you come to work with me and see the automatic box taper that I purchased? If you had talked about it like that, I would have shown up. Oh, yeah, man. And these guys who work back there, they're from Africa and they're really, they're awesome guys and we're friends and they tape the boxes. That's, That's how it worked. Well, but isn't it fascinating? Well, the machine taped the Isn't boxes. it fascinating that, um, you know, now we know too much about each other in our day. I mean, we're with each other all the time. So, I mean, it's just a, the, our daily routine. What would you have told me? That's what I would have told you. I would have said, um, well, what I did today is I went on the internet and I just looked at ultralight planes and how they fly around. And I looked at some blogs about ultralights, and then my boss came over. So you procrastinated. And he had incredibly horrible breath that he would put his 
he would put his face up over the top of my cubicle and talk. He wouldn't come into my cubicle. He would just put his head over the top. Of, really? So I would just see his face. And he would be like seven to nine feet from my face, but I would smell his breath. It was like a projectile. Projectile halitosis. Oh, it was like right into my nostrils. And so much so that I had to alter my breathing. My my manager's breath stunk really bad too. And he had a, we had offices, we didn't have cubicles. But so you wouldn't tell me anything about the actual job you did? Did you actually do work? Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's because in the specific sector of the engineering world that I was in, the energy market at the time, uh, with the whole, this is kind of boring information, but long story short, with the Enron scandal, it drastically impacted the workload at a firm that was designing power plants. So much so that for the whole last year that I worked there, we did nothing except like read novels and go on the internet because there was no jobs because it was all job-based. There was nothing you could do. Now, they told you they wanted you to be reading manuals and like learning standards, but no one did that, especially somebody like me who knew I wasn't going to do this forever. What were you supposed to be doing though? Designing how thick a pipe should be that no, well, carries you, water out yeah, of yeah. a... Well, not how thick, but how big around. So, uh, the first year... Okay. The first I'm year... I'm glad you set that one straight. No, but how much, you know, how thick a pipe is is the wall thickness. How, you didn't design how, that? How, the diameter of a pipe is what I would determine. So the material and the, the diameter and how large the retention pond should be. So th- this is actually kind of fascinating. If you look at a power plant, the entire, uh, the, the grade, meaning the slope of the ground, when you look at a power plant, it's all graded to one side or t- to a number of sides. And there's a retention pond. Basically, it's like, okay, we've put these huge slabs of concrete out here on earth. And now we have to take into account that we have changed the characteristics of this particular place so that when it rains, we've got to take that into account. And we've got to funnel all this water that comes off of these places, put them in a pond, and then distribute them, you know, into the, you know, off of, basically dam them up so they don't ruin anything. So there was an ecological consequence to what was happening, and you had to account for that by creating a retention pond. In, built, in like designing drains and then pipes that would route the water to the pond. And that Sounds kind of awesome. I built ponds, but you couldn't even put fish in them. I was always like, let's put some catfish out there. How come the last thing that we don't do is turn this into a fishing pond? And everyone just looked at me like, because that's not what this is about, bruh. Hmm. Makes me want to go back and do it now that you got me all fired up about it. Let's design some ponds, man. You can you can tape the boxes, and I'll design the ponds. Let's do it. No thanks. Okay, I'm pretty grateful, and even more so right now uh, after this conversation of what I'm currently doing. Yeah, this is pretty great. And now you know why I never told you about that. Yeah, because uh, I'm I'm kind of sleepy now. But give me this one concession here. Every day, no, once a week on Fridays, we need to start wearing khakis and tucked in polos because I think that it's like <laughs> professional, the opposite of casual Friday. The rest of the world is enjoying casual Friday, dressing like we're dressed right now. You have straight laced Friday, straight laced Friday, and everybody here uh, at the studio comes in dressed business casual, and we oh. we just be, we're thankful that we have this slacker job. Basically, you know, we get to talk to each other every day. You know, it's not a slacker job. Well, it's, it's a, a fun job. It's a fun job. It's we we yeah. It's not a slacker job, but it's a fun job. Let's who who else? Us. Who uh, I'm I'm shifting gears now. From okay. our, did you have anything else you want to say about that? No, polo. I was going to shift back to Michael. Tucked in polos and get into this thing. Because who else gets to talk to someone like Michael Stevens? Uh, 
about his personal life. Nobody but us, Rhett. No one else is doing this, I don't think. Well, that's not true, but it's nice that you think that. But we did have a conversation with uh, Michael about his personal life and also everything that led up to his amazing success on YouTube, which is 6 million subscribers on his Vsauce channel with titles for videos including, Why Are Bad Words Bad? Is anything real? How much money is there on Earth? What if everyone on Earth jumped at once? Now, let's talk to the man behind these irresistibly clickable titles. Here it is, Our Ear Biscuit with Michael Stevens. Now, you've, you've no. already gone through an energy drink, you're going, <laughs> about to go through a coffee, and then we've got two backup waters. I know, but how can we have two waters? There are three of us. Well, okay. I've already got one. Because yep. I'm betting that we all aren't going to need uh, a full bottle, an, an additional. Yeah, we're going to share one bottle. We're going to pass. We're going to pass it. You know, I shared a water bottle with Hen- Henry Winkler once. Really, yeah. the Fonz? Yeah, I went to this film school at in Orange at Chapman University for like two weeks over the summer, okay. and he came and spoke, and he left his water bottle on the lectern, and afterwards, I was like, uh, "Free Fonz spit," so I took it. And drink really? it. No, I wouldn't dare, you know, do that and taint the the saliva. Um, but I do figured, you still have it? I don't know. I might. So it wasn't. See, when you said that, you were like, I shared a a water bottle with Henry Winkler. I was like, oh, that means you guys were hanging, no, playing tennis together. And he, he was like, you want some no, of my water? He doesn't know that I took it. And I thought, you know, if I ever drank out of this, it would be a little bit like kissing him. <laughs> yeah. We, and what did you think about that? Like, and so then you drank out of it, or then no, you I was, didn't? I was afraid to do that, so I just kind of, I probably honestly threw it away, but just kept telling the story. <laughs> right, right, because it's really about the story. It's we, really about that. We once shared a lobby with Henry Winkler. Remember that? Yeah, he was in the lobby, and so were we. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, you shared it though. Yeah, we were sharing it really good. Um, I re- I remember as a kid being a pro wrestling fan and thinking, I don't know why I thought this because I never saw pro wrestling in person, but I was thinking if I were to ever be a, at a pro wrestling event and Hulk Hogan were to run past me and give me five, because he would do that as he was going down into the wrestling ring, I was I developed a plan that I was going to come home, put my hand in plastic and try to capture some of the sweat from Hulk Some Hogan. Yeah. Hoganness. And even though I never was able to execute the plan, it was a fully formed plan in my mind. Right. But you would eventually wash the hand. You would just bag right. up some of the molecules that were still there. Right. And then I would keep the bag and then wash my hand. That's great. That's actually really clever. But I'm pretty clever. But it wouldn't work. It's like trying to bag a fart or something. You oh, know, it's... you've never tried to bag a fart. <laughs> Why are we always going back to farts, the three of us? Um, yeah, last time you were here on The Mythical Show, we talked in detail about diarrhea. Yeah, I feel did. like like most of that got cut. I'm thinking it's for like the you know anniversary special deleted scenes <laughs> bonus. But, but let, me, let me put it to you this way. You're breathing in atoms that Hulk Hogan has breathed in. You don't need to bag up a high five molecule. That's just, a good point. Just be. Just be yourself. In theory, though, but you can't, you can't point to it. Yeah, this it's is not a, mem- you want to create memorabilia. That's why you at least kept the water bottle for a few minutes or days or weeks or whatever. It might me- still be in my closet in my bedroom at home in Kansas. But right. is it true though? That I mean, statistically speaking, have we breathed the same molecules as Hulk Hogan? Like, oh yeah, many times over. I think many times over. Atoms are just so tiny. 
Mm-hmm. They're so tiny. Each breath contains quintillions of atoms. And am- so just to get 100 of them from Hulk Hogan's breath, statistically very, very likely that you're doing it right now. Oh, my goodness. This is amazing. We're breathing Hulk Hogan's air. And you know what? There's a 100% chance that we have breathed Ric Flair's air because we shared an elevator with him. Remember that? Whoa. That was Greg the Hammer Valentine. It wasn't no, Ric no. Flair. They were both at the same hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee. You rode, you you and Tommy Rutledge rode the elevator with Greg the Hammer Valentine. I rode the elevator with the Nature Boy. That's called a bad choice on my part. I mean, and I breathed. Wrong elevator. I breathed deeply when I was in that when I was in that elevator with the Nature Boy. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about wrestling too. It's okay. like I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. You into pro wrestling? No, uh, no. What? <laughs> I think I was I was born at a different time. I was a bit too young mm-hmm. during during the Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan era, That's and then right. the Stone Cold Steve Austin era. I was in my like science phase. I wanted to know a bunch of facts and own test tubes, and so well, there's a lot of physics in pro wrestling. There, there really is, and there's a lot of acting, which I was always interested in as well. Really, yeah, I did theater all the time, all through high school, college. And in a in a way, now I still perform, but right. to a global audience. Well, let's do that. Let's let's go. Let's go back. Let's go even earlier. So, where are you from? Stillwell, Kansas. Stillwell, Kansas. Stillwell. Is that a small town? I've never heard of it. It's a pretty small town, not named after the stillness of its wells, but rather a guy named Mister Stillwell who helped get the railroad through the city or something. And by city, I mean it was a s- small town. As Overland Park, Kansas has grown, it has become a bit bigger, but it's still not really a suburb. There aren't aren't sewers, there aren't curbs, there aren't leash laws for dogs, but for anything. But there are traffic lights. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. There are a few traffic lights. Okay. Yeah. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Hmm. And then as soon as I turned, you know, five years old, started going to school, my parents moved to a house that wasn't right on this big, busy road, Ward Mm -hmm. Parkway. And we moved to Stillwell, Kansas, which is a bit political, right? Because all my family lived in Missouri, and here we are being Kansan people. That was – there's uh, controversy there? Yeah, because were we traitors to the state of Missouri? Yes. I think so. By leaving. By leaving. We only lived a mile from the border. I could just <laughs> ride my bike over to Missouri. And we would do that. We'd go to Belton, Missouri to buy fireworks every year. Okay. Oh, so they got loose laws over there on the fireworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like South Carolina. We would go to South Carolina. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right across the border, all the firework tents would oh, set yeah. up They're over awesome. the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was the thing. It was, oh, I'm, I'm riding my bike across the border. That was, that was kind of like an adventure for you as a kid. Yeah, and it was exciting because it's also a nerdy thing, borders, to be like, wow, like I can have one foot in Missouri and one in Kansas. And it's completely an arbitrary thing that yeah. – Humans made up. Right. But you're like, wow, there's something special about this. It's like sitting on the equator. We used to do that with the counties. <laughs> we would be like, this is the Johnson County, Johnston County line. Was it John- Johnson County? Johnson County. Yeah, counties were a big deal back in North Carolina. Johnson County, that's where Stillwell is. Johnson County, oh, really? Kansas. Yeah. Wow. This Johnson guy did a lot of counting. Well, I was, I was, I was Johnston. So oh, that guy's was, a jerk. He threw a T <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you grow up with both your parents? What was your family situation like? Yeah, definitely. I grew up with both of my parents and a sister, two years younger than me, named Melissa. Okay. And she is just so athletic. 
She played semi-professional American football on an all-girls team. What? Yeah. That she exists? Just bought it. Yeah. Wow. She just bought a dirt bike, and I'm like, oh, cool. But now she's doing, like, BMX tournaments on it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I, I break a sweat just peeling an orange. But my <laughs> sister, she is so fit and athletic, and she does all kinds of sports. So what, I mean, so what is that like growing up, you know, where you're, you're kind of uh, – You've got the stereotypes backwards a little bit in your family. You know, you've got the jock sister, and you're into science. Yeah, so they were still stereotypes, though. Still like, well, if you're going to excel at soccer, then I'm going to excel at knowing the most about everything else. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, my my older stepsister, anything she liked, I decided not to like just because she liked it, like music. As a kid, I decided not to like music. Just music at all. Period? At all, period, because Emmy liked music. You could have just picked the genres that she liked and hated those. I was that... I was that determined to uh, to be different. I'm going to swear off all the arts because you're a fan of music. Right. So did you consciously say this to people like, oh, I don't like music? Yeah. I, that's something it, a kid would say. Yeah. It was like, yeah, that's her thing. <laughs> yeah. But, th- but then I slowly got into it. I mean, I, I got like Weird Al Yankovic tapes, which, right. yeah. you know, you can argue that's not really music. So I was like, okay, this is like a comedy thing. It's something yeah, a little this bit is, different. This is making fun of music, just like I do all the time. So. Have you heard this experiment? It has not been done before, but you have a child, step one, and then you raise your child only listening to Weird Al Yankovic so that when they go off on their own as, mm-hmm. as you know, an adult and they hear all of these songs, the originals – they think, who are these people ripping off Weird Al and not being funny? <laughs> that's well, that's a cruel experiment. Yeah, sir. I'm still fertile. I could, I could still do it. Are you still fertile? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Congrats. Okay. All right, so let's let's keep going here. So your your sister, a little bit younger. What was it like growing up in that environment? What did your parents do? What a, do they do? It was a fantastic environment. My mother right now is working as a para at a high school, and she's a crossing guard. A what? A para? A para. So she helps all the teachers, and she helps with students that need extra help okay. and follows them around and gets to be in school all day in a, in a high school, but then also gets all the high school breaks. So she's off for the holidays in the summer, That's which nice. is perfect because that, it makes it easy for my sister and I to come home and visit and not have to like have her take time off work and blah, blah, blah. My dad is a chemical engineer. And he worked for a company called Black and Veatch the whole time, really. Oh, I, crap. Oh, 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 I know oh, oh, someone oh, oh, oh. who worked for Black and Veatch. Really? My first job out of college was Black and Veatch. <laughs> it's Rhett. No kidding. And where? They're, yeah, because the they're based in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. They always, always talk about Kansas City, like, we're going to send you to Kansas City. Whoa. You know, okay, so go on. What did you do for them? I was a civil engineer. Civil engineer. Yep. Yeah. I, I uh, of course, it's a, you know, a power design firm, you know, so we... In our office in Cary, we designed mostly natural gas plants. And so I was not just civil, but specifically, you know, a hydraulic engineer. So yeah. I would design the waste, basically the water retention system, that the is drainage so system. funny. And then like route some of the piping and stuff. Did that well, for so a couple exciting of years. Too. It sounds very exciting. It was riveting. So my uncle still works for Black and Beach. Well, I'm I'm sure I know a lot of people who know your uncle because we had like a hundred people in our office, still that's still there in Cary, North Carolina, and they they went to and fro from 
Kansas City all the time. Wow. So your uncle still works there. Your dad doesn't anymore, but he he did work there when you were growing up as a chemical engineer. Yeah, and he worked in sulfur recovery. So when you are getting natural gas, petroleum out of the ground, there's a lot of sulfur in there, more than you need. And a lot of these these plants that process or extract uh, petroleum products are really far away. And so it's not like, oh, throw the sulfur in the back of Ted's pickup and we'll drive it to the you know place where they make fertilizers or paints or what, whoever needs the sulfur. It's usually in the middle of Siberia or something. Right. And so my father invented a process called STEP, sulfur to energy process that actually took all that sulfur and then you could in some way use it to actually get energy back to keep running the plant. It was very popular. He has a patent on it. Oh, wow. When yeah. did he invent this? While I was a child. So is this like, I mean, is this the kind of thing you invent this and it's like a life transformation kind of situation? Well, he invented it while working at Black & Veatch. So they own, own it. Okay, right. own it. Um, and then I don't know exactly all of the details, but after I went off to college, he got a offer from a company based in Malaysia to start a sulfur recovery group for them. So he went off, made his own company called KPS. And I wondered, why'd you call it KPS? Why didn't you call it David Stevens Awesome Company or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, and he, he, he gave me this advice. He was like, Michael, I don't want to meet a client and tell them, hi, I'm from David Stevens Energy Recovery. I'm David Stevens. Because <laughs> then it seems like that's it. You know, if you're right. David Stevens from KPS, whew, whoa, right. what is KPS? That sounds huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't There's take that advice. You're Rhett and Link, Inc., right? Yeah, so it's, it's like the, you know. Yeah, I'm the Rhett from Rhett and Link, Inc. I, I mean, I have to do this all the time when we're, like, set, you know, setting up, you know, a new a phone account or something like that because we do all this ourselves. So I, I said, uh, like, what's the company? I'm like, Rhett and Link, Inc., and they're like, in your name? I'm like, Rhett Right. It gets kind of small kind of quick. Yeah, they're like, okay, I see what kind of corporation this is. We didn't anticipate that. Your dad is, is a smart guy. Yeah. I think Isn't that clever? Yeah. yeah. Now, so for you as a kid, were you a very inquisitive child, kind of nerdy? Were you, were you, you know, how would you describe yourself then? And were you like take, taking after your dad uh, genetically or just socially or what was going on? I, I took after my dad genetically because that's the law of biology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that, also, that's, good. that's a great question. Link. Also, I took after, <laughs> after him. After my dad <laughs> genetically. Wow. In other in words, mind, I wasn't adopted. In my mind, it was, it made, it was a more intriguing question. Uh, yeah. He took me to museums a lot. He's a very inquisitive guy, very interested in all kinds of things from philosophy to music to chemical engineering to physics to history to art, and I'd call him a polymath, which is what I would like to consider myself as well. I don't know how you qualify to be a polymath. But what, is, what does that mean exactly, polymath? It's someone who is interested in and can have meaningful conversations about all kinds of disciplines. Did you invent that term? No, not at all. No, it's been around since the word poly and math have been around. Oh, yeah. I, I, when I think of math, I think of like arithmetic. Right, but I think math in this sense, can mean discipline. Okay. Like Jared Diamond, okay? That guy is a polymath. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you want to talk about chemistry and also the anthropology of tribes in New Guinea? I can do that. So it's a nice way to say know-it-all. Yeah. You want to be a, you want to have, be a palatable know-it-all, which, th yeah, that, to make it a compliment, because know-it-all is, is, is let's, negative. Let's call it 
not a know-it-all, but an interested in it all. Okay. Okay. And and that's that's that was my identity. You know how in high school you've got the the goths and the jocks and and whatever. Well, I wanted to be the kid who had read the encyclopedia. That's a joke, right? Oh, that guy's so nerdy, he read the encyclopedia. Well, I did. You did. I did. I read the encyclopedia, not because, well, it was interesting, sure, but I also just really wanted to be able to tell people, oh, yeah, well, I read the encyclopedia, and, okay, so. <laughs> so okay, that's honest. I appreciate yeah, that. Even that early on, you could tell that I was curious, but also was a performer. Okay, so you didn't necessarily have... Uh, some of the other stereotypical things, aspects that come along with someone who's really interested in science and math and all these other things at that age, which might be social awkwardness, et cetera. Really good question. I See, I wasn't that socially awkward because I was such a class clown, right? I was not super attractive. I, didn't, I wasn't in the popular crowd, but I did on two occasions get invited to their parties because of my attitude in class. Mm-hmm. Right, I could be sarcastic and talk back, and the kids loved it, and the teachers didn't. Mm-hmm. So I got suspended my sophomore year in high school. Yeah, suspended. What did you do exactly? All right, let's go back and just explain that this particular class I was a really bad but great class clown in. Right, I would get the kids to all laugh at things, and I would. You know, criticize the assignments in funny ways, and the teacher really didn't like that. Uh, so then one day, I was going to make this joke about my friend who was quite nerdy. He tucked in his – okay, he wore his gym shirt to class. Yeah, kind mm-hmm. of a no-no. Kind of a weird thing. But it's he not also, gym class. It's not gym class. It was an English class. And he not only wore it to class but tucked it in with a belt. Mm. And it was like, okay, you're not fooling anyone. That's a, that's our gym shirt. Like, it even <laughs> yeah. kind of smells. So <laughs> a few days later, I wore my gym shirt to that class. And everyone's like, oh, Michael, like, he'll do anything. And I said, wait, I need to tuck it in. Uh-huh. But I was a little bit of a chubster, so I had to unbutton my pants to start tucking this thing in. Oh, <laughs> that's a no-no. So Everything you, goes according to plan. Sit back down doing the assignment. So so everyone's in class. This is like in the middle of class. Hold on, guys. I need to tuck in my shirt. As part of this joke. Which requires me to open my pants to all of you. But, right. every, but everybody got it. They're like, oh, yeah, because Ralphie, he came in. Yeah. With his, yeah, because this other student had done it, they all got it and didn't think a thing of it. But was his name Ralphie? Uh, almost. <laughs> Let's call him Ralphie to protect okay. his identity. <laughs> mm-hmm. He seems like um, a Ralphie to me. And so the teacher realized this could be the last straw. Mm-hmm. Let's call this sexual harassment. Oh, Taking your no. pants off in class? So she wrote. I mean, did you pull your pants down like a toddler? No, no. I just, <laughs> I unbuttoned and probably unzipped a little bit just so I could get my hand in there to tuck the yeah, shirt so around. So you weren't, you, you weren't like a toddler using the bathroom. You were like an old man tucking in his shirt. Exactly. Old men do this type of thing in public all the time. Yeah, I saw yeah, that this way. morning, yeah. I don't do that in public anymore, but the assistant principal shows up and takes me out. And as far as he knows, I just tore my pants completely off mm-hmm. and did a strip tease. Because, because the teacher used the term sexual harassment. Right. So they snatch, he snatched you out of class, yeah. the assistant principal, and 
So then I was stuck in what's called ISS, in-school suspension oh, for that, that day. I've been to that, yeah. Yeah, right? And I wasn't able to explain to anybody what had really happened. I didn't even speak with the real principal. But I told the assistant principal, look, what happened is like I had been trying to get up to the cookie jar to steal a cookie, which is bad. And yeah. then as I do it, oh, whoops, I trip and my pants fall off. And now I'm in trouble for that. But that part was an accident. Mm-hmm. Whatever. The principal never heard my explanation, and so I was suspended for three days. Wow. Yeah. And I had to go to all my teachers and tell them that I was suspended for acting up in class, and if and it was up to them to give me any assignments I would miss so that I could do them while I was suspended, or they could just say, no, you deserve this, and I'd get zeros on those things. So that was kind of like a walk of shame to mm. go to all my classes before my parents came and got me. And I was in a lot of trouble. Um and that kind of thing is, ends up being on your record, essentially, right? When yeah. you start trying to get into college. Yeah. So when I applied to colleges, fill out all the information, and there's that great question. It's just one question with a yes or no checkbox. Have you ever been convicted of a felony or suspended? <laughs> yeah, just lump it together. <laughs> they're, they're together. And if you check uh. yes, you have to submit an explanation that you wrote separately. And you find yourself talking to colleges about your fly being open. Well, right. there was a kid, I, your Ralphie, pants being he came, unbuttoned. He came to class with yeah. his gym shirt on. Yeah, and they would hear that and go, okay, I, I believe you weren't trying to harass anybody, but that's just not even funny. Like, that's not even a very clever trick. You tucked in a gym shirt? <laughs> like, at least get suspended for a good joke. Wow. So, but here's, here's what happens. So I turned it around, and it wound up making my college applications stand out hmm. because I was gone for three days. I was a little heavy at the time, as I explained, needing to, like, do this whole, like, pants thing because I couldn't get a shirt in otherwise. Hmm. And that summer, I mowed yards and ran and lifted weights every other day, and I lost, like, 40 or 50 pounds. Whoa, okay. And I got really tan. I mean, I was hot, <laughs> all right? I was hot. And I came back that next year and so applied. So the suspension led to a physical transformation. Exactly. Huh. And, and beyond that, I did a bunch of community service that summer working at this nature park, which was cool because everyone else there was my age, and they were doing court-ordered community service. So they were there because they, you know, broke stuff, vandalized, stole things, were caught with drugs, whatever. But I was just the kid who was like, I really want to get community service hours. And sure enough, when I got back to school, I was hot. I became, I think, vice president of National Honor Society. So on those college applications- Which is what happens when you get hot, I guess. That's what happens <laughs> when you get hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, on my applications, it all says, yes, I got suspended. But it was a wake-up call, a clarion call to change that caused me to better myself and now I'm ready for you, university. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. When I was doing community service at the nature park, this one kid that I really liked, hung out with a lot, he was there because he'd stole a canoe from a sporting goods store. That's tough. I'm like, how do you do that? And he's like, it made so much sense. If I tried to steal something small, I'd get caught. But if I just walk out of there with a whole canoe... People will think, well, he clearly knows what he's doing. No one's just going to walk out with a canoe. But the problem was his pants were unbuttoned and unzipped. <laughs> you, sir. <laughs> I think the problem You're was- sexually <laughs> harassing that canoe. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Is that the, what happened? Um, if only. The problem in his case was that he was like 14. And 14-year-olds <laughs> don't just like buy canoes and then drag them out. <laughs> if he'd been like a man, if, if or not, not or a woman, just an adult person yeah. in general, or if he was wearing like a you know bright construction vest, it would look like, oh, do, it's, it's official, like just let him do it. Yeah. 
<laughs> so he was there at the at – the, uh, yeah, and what's neat is because I was the only service. person there who wasn't in trouble through juvenile court, I was given the most responsibility. I got to drive the golf carts around with all the plants and mulch or whatever. I got to kind of lead the projects. Yeah, yeah. So Status. as you can see, I hit my nadir, and then I could only go up from there. And you did. Yeah, That's what got you into college. Where did you get into college? University of Chicago. And it, it was a result of this, like the essay that you attached the sexual harassment explanation? I think it helped a lot, yeah. Wow. And you wanted to, or what did you studied what? I studied neuropsychology and English literature. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, and you, you mentioned that um, you started getting into theater and uh, performance and stuff. So that started a little bit earlier, but you carried that into college? Yeah. So in high school, I started doing exactly what I do now on Vsauce which is I wrote informative speeches for a program called Forensics. That's like a, a, a club at your high school? Exactly. And then on the weekends, you would go to different high schools and you would perform informative speeches about seven to nine minutes long to judges. And then they would you know, so score pu- all the public students. public speaking, not debate. It was not debate. It was competitive public speaking, okay. right? <clears throat> and there, there are different events. You could also do oration, which is a speech that's a bit longer and it's more about – an opinion, um, letting people know about something um, or giving them information. Well, it's different than informative. Uh, And I did both, and I did my first informative speech about ketchup. And as a guy who had grown up reading the encyclopedia, Mm -hmm. I could come up with a lot of things to say about ketchup or tangentially involved in ketchup. And I was quite excited about these things. I mean, I talk the same way I do now. My first tournament, I got first place. And I was this freshman. for For ketchup. I called it Ketchup on ketchup. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Play on words. Play on words. Now, let me tell you this. In high school, I went through puberty at like eight years old. <laughs> Not even high school. So I was like- you, the, had, you had a beard. Really? When did you get the beard? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like, I think I was still in the womb when the beard was coming in. <laughs> it was sprouting. Yeah. So before all the other guys caught up, I was like quite, you know, mature looking and big and I- was the only guy in my high school who could play adult male characters in plays. So they hear that I'm doing speeches. I don't really act, but the drama teacher asked me to audition for repertory theater. And I just gave one of my speeches. And they were, I think they just said, look, we need this guy because he looks so old. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. sure enough, I performed in a lot of plays as the dad. Or the oldest man. <laughs> right. It makes sense because you'd rather use one of the students as opposed to like the janitors. I mean, sometimes they use the janitor. Sometimes they use... Just a dad. Somebody who works in unemployed, the cafeteria. Unemployed dad. Right. And then it's like, that's oh, a little creepy, this adult guy. Right. Yeah. So I could do it and I already had like this kind of receding hairline and that was so lucky. I mean, if there's any piece of advice here, it's that it's okay to kind of have a gimmick because you'll get in faster. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to necessarily already know how to act and a lot about theater. I just was able to say, yeah, sure, I'll be the dad. I'll be the old male figure. And that's what I did. Um, but the other people that I acted with, the other kids, were so much more talented than I was. That was, that was amazing. Because they were so good, I had to keep up with them, and I had to learn, and I always felt like I was surrounded by people more talented than myself. And that's that can make you scared, but it can also be really inspiring. And so I think 
my life has been a story of trying to find those moments where I can be the one in the room who knows the least and is the least experienced and can hopefully get some of the, my mm. surrounding um, colleagues' talent to rub off on me. So what? where was your mind when you went off to college and had that double major and this this bent towards entertainment? I knew I was never going to be that great of an actor, but I got really into the theory of theater and directing. So William Ball and Bogart, I read everything they would wrote. Yeah, so connect the dots for us uh, in how it went from where you were at in college to where you're at now. So I'm doing a lot of theater, right? Especially directing. That's what I love to do. And then I saw a video probably on College Humor or something. I don't think YouTube was quite there yet. Um, and it was a mashup that took The Shining and made it look like a, a funny movie. Okay. Have like you a, seen this? Yeah, it, it was yes. a, a movie trailer that for a movie called Shining, which is this feel-good relationship thing between yeah. the son and Like a family father. vacation. Yeah, he just, yeah. The, the guy who edited it just, chose the right moments to make it look like a family fun thing. And then he put music in that really pulled at your heartstrings. Yeah. And it floored me. That was so powerful. Today we take it as, you know, well, anyone can do that. But at the time, this was like a landmark thing that you could take a, a famous piece of work like The Shining and make it mean something completely different without even needing to own a camera. It was just straight up editing. And that was huge to me. So I immediately joined our campus film group so that I could learn how to use editing software. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I edited was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the trailer, remixed to look like a horror film. Okay, so you did the opposite. I did the opposite. Shining. And what I did, it was so simple, but it was a great exercise. I just took the entire movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then I took the trailer for Friday the 13th with Don LaFontaine's voiceover, mm-hmm. and I used his voiceover as the template, and I just found Ferris Bueller's scenes to fit each thing that he said. So when he goes, 13 of her friends are dead, I took the nurse giving a hug to Sloan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it was really easy. You would just find a thing that kind of matched, and then you'd put it in this like spooky music. Sure. And yeah. And then where did you post that? I posted it on about 16 different video sites. Everything from E-Bombs World to iFilm to Yahoo to oh, yeah. College we, Humor. Yeah. yeah. We, we the same strategy. We we used to have an account everywhere. Everywhere. All, all those places you just mentioned and many more. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was it was um it's called super distribution. Funny or die was one. Yeah. Yep. And did it take off anywhere? Or? Yeah, on College Humor. Right? So they put mm-hmm. it on the front page. If you watch it today, you're gonna go, this is really a clumsy edit. But seriously at that time, we're talking about 2006, 2005, mm-hmm. this was like, whoa, you just changed a piece of culture. Mm-hmm. And, and how many people have watched it? Two million? That's insane. So that made me really excited. I remixed George W. Bush and Carl Rove into a rap video, <laughs> which again is terrible. I called it Bush and Rove Thug Life. <laughs> 
so in their own words, they were like talking over a rap beat kind of a thing. There was yeah. no auto tune back then. No, there was. Well, maybe there was some sort of auto tune thing, but I there was know no auto tune. The news, right. right? I just remixed a couple of songs: "Make It Rain" by Fat Joe and one other song. And I just found moments like George Bush raising his hand up, and then I looped it so it looked like he was going, yeah, to the beat up and down. <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing, but it's very hip-hop. Oh, I'm yeah. really in mm-hmm. tune with dance moves. And I, that's what I did. And that wound up on the front page of Funny or Die with a review by Chris Hinchy, Brooke Shields' husband. And he was like, I judge someone's friendship with me based on the reaction to this video. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it got like 100,000 views by being on the front page of Funny or Die back yeah. in 2006. And that was giant. And the fact that this celebrity talked about it, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm doing. This is incredible. It's basically art, but it's mm-hmm. also comedy. And look mm-hmm. how big the audience is. And it was just editing. Just a little bit of editing that you learned by going to this club. It wasn't creating anything from scratch it was basically using that found footage yeah found footage template and so did you start to branch out at that point or just more of the same so then i made a youtube channel called campaign 2008 but the pain was spelled p-a-i-n like ouch pain get it it. very clever and i just catch up (laughs) catch up on catch up so uh there i did all my political remixes i think bush and rove thug life might be on that channel. Um, and then I just started making an edit for every person running for the presidency in 2008. Huh. Um, so I did one with Ron Paul that mixed him up with some chameleonaire song. Um, <laughs> yeah, gosh, I kind of am forgetting some of these. I did a, a, a Hillary Clinton one where I found a speech where she said something about white something like red, white, and blue. And she also talked about like power. And so I made it look like she was talking about white power. Yeah, really stupid stuff. But uh, Sensational. Sensational, yeah. But really they were exercises that allowed me to learn how to use editing tools. So if I saw an interview with Ron Paul with a blue background, I'm like, I think I can chroma key that blue out and put him in a chameleonaire video. And sure enough, I, I, I learned how to do that. And it took hours because I was having to like Google how to use chroma key on Final Cut and all right. this stuff. Y- you were doing this totally alone. There I was, was alone, yeah, in the basement of the like biological laboratory, which had a media suite. And that's what I would do, you know. I didn't even have my own computer that could run Final Cut, so I would get up really early and go there and just work, you know. Wow. Yeah. Look at that guy doing biology in there. No, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did your maybe fr- not. Did your friends at the time know that you were kind of creating these viral videos? Or was it because typically people who are in college who are creating viral videos, it's more of a collaborative thing. Oh, my friends get together. We thought this would be funny. I find it interesting that it seems like an isolated experience. It was for very you. isolated. <clears throat> yeah, because I was working with found footage. Mm-hmm. Just editing on my own. And I at the time, I worked in the basement of the um, the big library, just opening mail that they received and sorting all the mail. And so I would just sit there and I would um, listen to political speeches and then take notes about, ooh, the way she said the word but was so isolated there, I could easily make – like cut that out and make it sound like she talked about her, you know, a bottom butt, right? <laughs> and I would just do this while I opened and sorted the mail. And I think because all of my friends in college were older than me – by the time I was a senior, they'd all graduated. Mm-hmm. And, and my closest friend, who was my same age, he was studying abroad that year. So, and I, I moved into an apartment that was a studio, so I lived by myself. And so it was a very 
isolated life. I, I think my girlfriend had broken up with me too. So all I did was watch political news, take notes on the speeches, and then go to the library uh, at 7 a.m. when it opened. It closed at about 1 a.m., and that's all I did. Well, so were you sad or were you happy? No, I was super happy. I mean, I still had a bunch of friends through theater that I hung out with during the day, and I was still going to classes, but I'd become incredibly focused on each project. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because then the project <clears throat> itself was faceless. So Exactly, yeah. Y- you know, it was, kind of, it was this channel that it, it wasn't personality-based, right? Right. So pro- the most famous episode I ever made through Campaign 2008 was called Hillary Clinton Farts. And I found a moment in a debate where she cleared her throat. And I could put in just a little. (laughs) And I made it really subtle and I put a filter on it. So it really did. I mean, it looks realistic. And in fact, it's fooled a lot of people. Uh Um, And when I I told this story to some people. So you didn't put it to a beat. You just No, this was just a 28-second long clip. And I watched the whole thing. And I I made notes of all the other. uh, Barack Obama, John Edwards, the – the interviewer and audience members' reactions, and I got all the right reactions where they just sort of put their heads down or they just kind of <laughs> stare blankly. And then the very last reaction is this big guy in the audience who's just looking, nodding his head like, <laughs> I know, that's my kind of girl. And that was 28 seconds long, but it. It, it took off like crazy. I think it has something like 9 million views. And then a, a guy just ripped it off of my channel because it was faceless and put it on his, and that one has like 12 million views. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. And he cut, I, I did put a Campaign 2008 logo at the end that I'd made, but he cut that off. Of course. And, you know, it just got, this was, it got ripped everywhere, and you can find it in all kinds of video sites. Well, and I guess at the time, I mean, it, like a lot of us back in that time, 2007, 2008, you know, you didn't really have, there was no vision. There was no business plan associated with this. It was just like, this is really cool and people are watching and I'm exactly. going to keep doing it. You kind of get addicted to, yeah. the, you know, that the attention that these things garner. Yeah, yeah. I made one called Barack Bollywood where I made it look like Barack Obama was singing a Bollywood song. I just, I took one of his speeches and I cut out every vowel and consonant sound so that then I could take the Bollywood vocal track and just say, okay, that's like an, that's a long A. Let me get the Brock long A mouth shape. And I animated him singing it. And that wound like up- lip syncing Lip syncing, right. exactly. And that wound up on, um, it wound up being written about in Newsweek magazine. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't even know who I was. And they didn't ask. They just said, you know, here's a still frame from Barack Bollywood, a crazy video made by an Obama fan, which- how did they – I didn't say I was an Obama fan. I was just a guy editing yeah. a goofy thing. But it got in Newsweek, and that was insane. So at about that time, we move on to the next part of the story, which is Ben Rellis mm-hmm. discovering the videos that I was making in Chicago and asking me to make some kinds of edits for Barely Political, which right. at the time was – Because Ben was the – Creator of creator Obama of, Girl. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that was – Huge. That was like when that came out, people were like, wait, Obama must have funded this. No one just does this on their own. A parody video had never really been made like that ever. So to this day, Obama Girl is in textbooks because the 2008 election was this like first election social media was around for and mm-hmm. it's a big deal. So, so when, Ben, creator of Obama Girl, this, this amazing viral sensation, contacts you because he's seeing that you're doing something. Political, same thing. Right. Political comedy, yeah. Yeah. And so I made 
a piece for them that I was paid some flat fee for. Um, and it was <laughs> it was the same as Hillary Farts, but it was John McCain this time. And I got him calling up on a phone laughing, and I made it sound like he was burping. And then I found footage of Hillary Clinton answering a phone and kind of like she's confused about the thing. And so he just keeps farting and burping over the phone. <laughs> and then she's like, what? I What? <laughs> and, then, and then he just, like, laughs and hangs up, and that's the end. <laughs> How did that one do? Oh, man. I think it has, like, three or four million. Wow. Yeah, but again, so faceless. So it was on, that's on barely political, political yeah. channel at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so did that transition into a job? Yeah, so, so then I started doing a lot of editing for the stuff that Mark Douglas and Rusty Ward were writing for Barely Political, and they would, like, mm-hmm. overnight me the footage, and I'd edit the thing. Um then when I graduated, it kind of turned into I would love to work with you guys all the time. And they were in New York, right? They were in New York City. So by about September, we'd worked out a deal, and I was hired full time by Next New Networks, which yeah. owned Barely Political. And I moved out to New York City and did that for like four years. Right. And there, there's a number of things that are fascinating about this for me. I mean, I, I think when I first saw you – because know, we, we've all witnessed you know, the explosive growth of your videos over the past – year or so especially and like we're uh, talking a five million subscriber jump in like a year time yeah frame. yeah and i think the thing that you know when you see something that becomes incredibly successful on youtube as youtubers uh watching that you you conjecture and you try to figure out why it's working and you and you, and you make assumptions about things and i just was thinking okay this guy obviously is from a science background he's incredibly smart and uh, he was some professor somewhere, some scientist somewhere that got somebody was like, "Hey, we know we know how to produce this content, and we're going to put you here and make you do this, and it's just working great." That's just my the assumption that I brought, but it makes so much more sense to hear the story, which is obviously you're a smart guy who read the encyclopedia, who can speak on these subjects with authority. But the reason that it's so successful is because you lived it, you discovered how things work on the internet personally and personally produce these things in a way that you just can't pull some professor out of a college and say, hey, talk about this. You know, I think it's fascinating. Even going back to your, you know, your, you know, oration and how you, you speak and how, how it all there's, came together. there's a background from that too. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that backstory. You know, they, they think maybe that I'm just brought in and there's a whole team producing them. But up until a month ago, I was doing all the editing and everything. I researched and wrote, and then I shoot alone, just like Zay Frank. You know, with the camera has to be close enough to my face that I can reach out and press the record button and focus it. Yeah. To this day, I still shoot alone. Um, luckily, I have an editor now who can help me get that. You know, he can work on the edit while I work on the next episode or on other projects. But yeah, I grew up with the internet. I grew up ever since maybe 2005. I think there have only been a few occasions I haven't made a video during a week since then. But some of them were faceless. They were just crazy edits or compilations that didn't say, hey, I'm Michael Stevens. Now, at some point, um, Next New Networks that you worked for became, was bought by Google or something happened there. And kind of at this, kind of at the same time, uh, with so many changes going on with how YouTube itself worked, there was a lot of Vsauce on the homepage of YouTube. And I remember there was, there was a meeting amongst a whole bunch of YouTubers where YouTube people came in and explained all the changes. And at one point, there was a, an outrage 
where it was like, why is this? Vsauce can get on the homepage all the time, but I can't anymore. What's happening? And then there's somebody saying, well, you know, Michael is a Google employee. And it's like, oh, that's the answer. And of course, I don't believe that's the answer. But, you know, you rack your brain. And so... Is that really what it is, though? <laughs> Do we need to become Google employees to really well? And explain first the kill, the, kill the, this ac- thing, the acquisition, so that you're technically working for Google. Now. Of course, yeah. So first of all, no. I mean, I wish I knew how to get onto the front page. That is a super secret thing that is always changing, right? Which is kind of cool. In fact, I wish I knew more about how these algorithms are built because there's not anyone who makes a conscious decision to, to curate anything mm-hmm. onto the front page because that's that's not a very YouTube thing, right? It should be, this is what people are watching. And you can actually um, surface super cool content faster using mathematical algorithms. So they'll, they'll detect, wait a second, Perez Hilton and Sports Illustrated both embedded this video? That's a weird combo. Clearly, this is something important. Get it up there. It's important, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's being viewed by a very diverse uh, group of demographics. Get it up there, right? But the specifics of how all these things are weighted is a super huge mystery, I think, to almost everybody. But you're a Google employee, right? <laughs> yeah, so to, to go to the acquisition, Next New Networks had created a lot of really great shows, and we discovered a lot of great talent. For instance, the Gregory Brothers and Autotune the News. Mm-hmm. Ben Rellis found um, Michael Gregory doing his little funny things, and and we started collaborating with Barely Political and, and Autotune the News. Um and so YouTube uh, wound up acquiring Next New Networks so that we could take what we'd learned in the field making all of this stuff and, and send it out to partners at scale, right, and, t- and teach them what we had learned and give them advice and all of that. And by the way, Ben Rellis <laughs> is the reason why the mythical show existed, you know, uh, working on on the innovation side right. of YouTube from within YouTube and saying, what does YouTube want to invest in? Well, one of those things is long form. I was having a relationship with Ben. That That's where the mythical show came from, just as a side note. Um, so he got moved over. Next New Networks got moved over. And you as a part of that, as a Google employee. Yeah, and it was, it was just, a f- it was phenomenal because all of a sudden YouTube acquired a company of people that had been using YouTube and e-bombs and Yahoo and every possible way to super distribute, Netflix, Roku boxes, all of these things. We'd been using this for years and we'd been building successes and failures and we tried everything. So all of a sudden we brought in all these people to YouTube who had been using the system for their well-being. You know, if I didn't get enough views on something, well, I might just get fired, right? There was this pressure to always be innovating and to be Figuring out secrets like, oh, if I do this, I think I might be able to get more views or I might get onto this chart or I might da 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 all these things. And how do I use annotations to do something that's really tricky and gets me blogged about? Like that was our whole mindset. It was a really creative environment. So then YouTube got all of this knowledge when they acquired Next New Networks. And now I work for YouTube as a programming strategist, spreading out my successes and failures and questions and challenges to other creators, letting them know, hey, I did this once, you know, two years ago, and it worked really well. Or I did this, and people hated it, so maybe don't do that. And how did how did the whole move to London factor into this? So I was a programming strategist in New York City, and they needed someone to do that same job in EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I was going out to London uh, for a week or two at a time to sort of meet with their partner managers and tell them, you know, hey, 
these are some cool things people are doing. These are some really innovative things people are doing. These are some programming strategies that are working, shows that don't just get people to click but get people to subscribe, right? And I wound up loving the team out there in the UK and all of Europe and Middle East and Africa. And then I said, hey, you're, you're hiring someone to do what I do in New York. Can I apply for that? And they said, sure. And I got that job and was lucky enough to get to move to the UK. And it's it's been amazing. I don't think it's a coincidence. Vsauce has grown as fast as it has since I moved out to Europe and really learned a lot more about the world and about global audiences. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, are you are you studying not only your audience, but these things, these other things that are really popping on YouTube? Are you a student of those type of things in order to seeing where Vsauce should go? And what are those? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, where, sh- where Vsauce should go, in my opinion, is beyond YouTube. You know, YouTube is a, is a part of a business, right? And it, it's a, it can be a really powerful part of a business. But I think that Vsauce has a lot of exciting opportunities offline that will help us let the rest of the world know that we exist who isn't looking at YouTube as closely and let them know that there's such great content on YouTube. If that means like writing columns for a magazine, if that means um, getting a Vsauce board game, I mean, hello, like those kinds of things are really what's exciting to me right now. But it's, it's all a Google entity now, right? Or is Vsauce separate? Is it owned by Google too or? Yeah, it is. It is. And so part of innovating and part of like figuring out what advice we can give to channels means that we need to run Vsauce like it's a channel. And so if there are opportunities in other media, if there are any way we can help bring more people to YouTube, that is what we're looking for. Well, I got to say that, uh, you know, the content is very welcome on YouTube from my perspective because, uh, you know, I love the fact that there that people are responding to content that is challenging, that is informative, that isn't tricking people into watching videos, that isn't just about video games and isn't just about the latest celebrity gossip. I mean, I, to me, that's, you know, a lot of people have their opinions about what YouTube videos should be and what the YouTube audience is. And I think that the fact that your videos have gotten so popular attests to the fact that there's people who actually want to learn legitimate information. And apparently it's a very broad audience. And that's, I mean, that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. The audience is really broad, but YouTube is so big. There's room for everything. Mm -hmm. Do you make three hour long films? Perfect. YouTube's great for that. Do you want to just watch videos of the surgery you're about to have? Yeah. YouTube has that too, (laughs) right? So it's easy to think that there's only one type of genre or style or click that is YouTube, but YouTube is gigantic. Did your brain ever ever turn off? You just like veg out? Yeah, for sure. Um, no. <laughs> I think, I think you know, as I kind of get a life back, like I said, you know, I'm taking a vacation of sorts starting Saturday, and I like to hang out with people who just don't even do YouTube. So how are you getting a life back? You, are you, that implies that, A, I didn't your have life, a life was taken away, yeah. or you didn't have one. Yeah. And so... Tell us, is, is that true? And then how you go about getting it back? What do you mean get your life back? Look, you know, if you want to create 13-minute long episodes every week and build an audience and get 5 million subscribers in a year, you know, and you also want to have a life at the same time, 
you don't, don't, you know? <laughs> Not gonna happen. Um, Colin Gray from CGP Gray put it really well. He's like, okay, look, you have four things in life and you get to pick two. Job, friends, family, and health. Pick two. And I've been focusing on hmm. my job and my job as the two things. You doubled down. I doubled down. And that meant that everything I did, even watching Family Guy episodes at two in the morning was all about, huh, what if dogs talked? Okay, that could be an idea. And then I'll, I'll read about anthropomorphism and all these things, you know. But now I'm starting to realize, you know, taking a break is like really good for your mental health, for your creativity, and spending time with someone who does a completely different job and not thinking about Vsauce or thinking about any, any you know, other project I'm working on and just being a human and learning and hanging out with different people invigorates you. So you're quitting for a while. No, Is that not what at you're all. saying? No, not at all. Not at all. I'll still make an episode. So it's not really a vacation, <laughs> but it's, it's just rather than uh, spending 24 hours a day researching and writing, I should spend like 21, <laughs> right? <laughs> really? That's yeah. what you're going to – that's your plan? That's my plan for a relaxing vacation. Um, just to taper it a little bit. Yeah. And it's also important to meet people who do different things because it will blow your mind, right? And that's why – when we say Vsauce is a scientific channel, I think not really. I mean, I do. Well, what's the shortest poem you can write? What's the greatest honor? You know, a lot of these things are more about mm -hmm. language and culture and the arts and history. Um, and it's not just laboratory experiments and test tubes. Well, listen, man, thanks for coming here to the round table of dim lighting. Yeah. Now you need to sign it. And you can sign it in English. Yeah, I would love to. I only know English. You'll say un poco espanol, pero muy mal. <laughs> and that's it. Our conversation with Michael from Vsauce. He's not Vsauce. I know we, we would always refer to him as Vsauce, but... Uh, but I mean, he says... Uh, Vsauce Michael here, but he's yeah. saying Vsauce... Is the audience... And it's just the thing. And then Michael is him here. I wasn't confused by that when he was here in the room. So I knew his name was Michael. And I appreciated kind of getting to know him as a person. I found it very fascinating. You know, timing is everything. I think we've learned that from a lot of these stories we've heard with the advent of the internet and YouTube and entertainment. Um, for him, there were three parallel tracks. His scientific mindedness and fascination with all those things which become the content of Vsauce, his class clownedness and wanting to be an entertainer, speech giver, uh, actor. And then the third thing in college of just wanting to be an editor and making viral videos that really had nothing to do with the other two. And then the three of them come together because of his success as Vsauce. Yeah, and because Vsauce. of YouTube, you know. Um, yeah, we definitely can relate to that and how these weird skills and, you know, desire for something to happen and then the opportunity that YouTube provides leads to a career. It's just, it's nuts. But yeah, I, I did find it very interesting. He said that his friend said there are only four things, uh, I think it was his friend, well, somebody told him, there's four things you can have in life. There's four things in life, but you got to pick two. Job friends, family, and health. And when he said that, I immediately had a knee-jerk reaction. I was like, in my mind, that's not true. That's not true. It can't be true. 
Uh, then I started thinking about it and I realized yeah. he's right. Now, the interesting thing is we have the ability to circumvent this a little bit because we work together. So while we don't have a lot of other friends. I mean, we have some friends, but I think it's clear that we've chosen family and, and job. job with just a few friends and we don't exercise. Yeah, there's, uh, we were just talking about this the other Very day. There's no exercise. I mean, we do some active things, but there's no like commitment to health, right? And beyond our friendship and the few other friendships that we have that are not regular, like see people all every, uh, on a regular basis, it's job and family. But it's interesting that you're right. We've kind of gamed the system because we're, we work together and we are friends. And here's how we so can complete. Are we really friends or coworkers? No, we're friends. That's the, that's the question. Here, but no, listen, we can totally game this system, all four, if we get those treadmills that you, you run on, those little uh, elliptical machines that you do while you're at your stand-up desk. Right, that will never happen. I think what you no, need no, no, to be no, no, thinking no, is but, we need to make a, an exercise channel. We need, to, we need to totally change our brand to just be like, we're exercise, we're personal trainers. Well, we could do an exercise channel. That's yeah. the only way to make it work. But just and as all the, one of the all things. the people that we're training are friends that we're making in real life and they're like in the room. That's how we do it. That's how we game the system completely. Hmm. Well, we could just get one of those little ellipticals. I'm not talking about the, like, the big elliptical that we had. I'm talking about this little thing, that little stair step thing that as we're at our stand-up desk, we're like, hey, you got, I got an idea. If that's the noise you're going to be making the entire time, then you're going to lose the friendship aspect. I'm only going to be making that noise the first three months until or my body adjusts. Or we could Adju- adjust this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Or we could just, you know, come to grips with the fact that that's how it is, and we're choosing our two, and we get a little bit of friendship too, and we should just be thankful. But we shouldn't try to game the system. No, no. Without health, though, we'll die, but we'll be happy. Uh, okay. Die happy. I went, we didn't, you know, I wonder what he said right now. He's got just job and job, just job and job. So he's only put, picked one. Yeah. He doubled down and, well, can't blame him. <laughs> really? Well, he's a, sing, no. he's a single guy. You know, he can kind of get away with it right now. So thanks, Michael, for coming in. Uh, be sure to tweet at Michael and let him know. I'm kind of, I'm actually looking right now. I think it's tweet sauce. If you go to twitter.com slash tweet sauce. Huh. Yeah, that's it. You can let him know that you listen to this. Tweet you, sauce. You have a, you've gained an understanding of the man behind the science. And these two men are going to be here next week delivering you more stories. I want for some reason I want to say stories from the road. I don't know why. Well, that's a new podcast it just, that it we're just starting. Sound, it sounded like it sounded good. We're going to start that on Sunday. Stories from the road. But in the meantime, uh, we hope you enjoyed this ear biscuit with a little bit of V sauce on it. Ooh, think about that. A little bit of that green V sauce on your ear biscuit. Mental picture. Eat it. <laughs>